And as they're walking there, I'm going to ask you to imagine, if you will, that you're in my living room, and we're watching TV. I happen to like game shows, and one of my favorites is a game show called Family Feud. And um, I remember when Richard Dawson was the host, for those of you that remember that. Some of you guys are going, Richard Dawson, who was he? But um, imagine that the host of that show said, we, we surveyed 100 people, and we asked them to tell us or name something that is faithful. Well, you might be tempted to yell out like I do when I'm watching a game show, because the answers are so much easier when you're in your living room than when you're on television. I might yell out, uh, Old Faithful, a geyser that's in Yellowstone Park. Or maybe, you know, you kind of like puppies and doggies, and so you might yell out a dog, man's best friend. Um, perhaps you know someone in the military. You might yell out a Marine, Semper Fidelis, always faithful. Or, or maybe you're like me. I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, and I might yell out Samwise Gamgee, the faithful friend of Frodo. I'd be, there might be just one answer on there, but that would be me. What you probably would not answer is the nation of Israel. I don't think that would occur to anybody to be able to say. Now, I want us to think about Israel for a second. It was always God's intention that the sons of Abraham, the nation of Israel, that they would be a faithful people, that they would receive the blessings of his covenant faithfulness, and that they would return that back to him. And it would be through Israel's faithfulness that the nations of the world would know the true majesty, glory, and character of Yahweh, the God that they worshipped. Unfortunately, for those of us that are students of the scriptures, we know that throughout its history, Israel really struggled and failed to meet that mandate. And so this morning, we're going to look in the book of Numbers as we're working our way through the Pentateuch. We're going to specifically look at chapters 13 and 14, and it's a long passage. It's a couple of chapters, so I'm going to get us started here for a moment. As we've been working our way through this True and Greater series, we've seen Israel's journey from slavery in Egypt to freedom towards the promised land, and this journey has not been without difficulty. Through 10 plagues that God placed upon the slave-keeping nation of Egypt, they were confronted with the power and the might of Israel's God, Yahweh. And if you remember, during the first Passover, Israel's firstborn sons were spared while the firstborn sons of, Israel, of uh, Egypt were taken by death. And then they fled through the Red Sea, which had been miraculously parted. And Israel experienced God's rescue from their life of slavery. And so you would think at this point that emotionally and spiritually and physically, Israel would be all set, that God's faithfulness to them would be sunk deep into their collective spirits. And that their faithfulness to him would be easily returned. But we know that that's not the case. For in just a short period of time, if you remember... Moses went up to the Mount of Sinai and to hear from God and to receive further instructions. And Israel, at the base of the mountain, impatiently rejected Yahweh. And they took the gold that they had plundered from Egypt and they melted it. And they created for themselves a calf, a golden calf, a god 
that's made from their own hands, and then they rejected Yahweh and worshipped that golden calf. Yahweh, in his mercy, spared the nation his full wrath, for they were outright disobedient. And Moses requested that God remain, and so he did as a pillar of fire and as a pillar of cloud. And he went before Israel as they continued their journey towards a land that he had promised them because he was their forgiving and liberating and, yes, powerful God. And yet, in the balance of this journey, a pattern emerged for Israel, a pattern that we would be wise to pay attention to. See, they would receive God's grace and then a difficult circumstance would arise. It would confront them. And they would falsely interpret the circumstances as being a sign that God no longer cared. And grumbling and complaining would soon follow. And eventually it would turn into active disobedience. Again, it's a pattern that Israel repeated over and over and over. It's a pattern that the prophets spoke about. It's a pattern that Jesus pointed out in the Gospels. It's a pattern that certainly God the Father was aware of. It's full and throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And this pattern can be seen again this morning in Numbers 13. For after that disaster of the golden calf, many theologians point to this morning's Uh, scripture as the second great apostasy, the second time that Israel turned its back on God's gracious face. You see, Israel's now in the desert. They're in a place called the wilderness of Paran. They're just at the edge of the promised land. And just as they're ready to enter into it, Israel demonstrates its DNA of unfaithfulness once again. See, it's here, right at the finish line, that Israel, in its wandering against all odds, snatches defeat from the jaws of victory. What had been intended for them as a blessing now had turned into a great tragedy. See, to begin our story, God instructs Moses, and he he says, send out scouts into Canaan, because that was the promised land. And while Israel was camped in that wilderness, God specifically says that Cana is a land that he, Yahweh, is going to give Israel. And therefore, a leader from every one of the 12 tribes are selected, and they're named, and they go out, and they check out this gift. And amongst those leaders are two men that we're familiar with. There's uh, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, and from the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, son of Nun, who Moses renames Joshua, hence the name of that book. Moses instructs those 12 leader scouts concerning the promised land. They're to go throughout the lengths and the widths and the summits and the valleys of this promised land because there's questions that need to be answered. What is that land like? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it rich or is it poor? Are there trees or aren't there trees? And if there are, what kind of trees? And if there are trees, what kind of fruit will they bear? In fact, They're instructed to bring back some of the fruit, and it's a good time to go because it's the season of first ripe grapes. It's late July, and things are at their fullest. What are the cities like? Are there camps like they were in, or are there strongholds that were walled 
and fortified. And what are the people there like that live within them? Are there many people or are there few people? Are they strong or are they weak? Lots and lots and lots of questions. But here's the question that they were not to answer. There was to be no debate around whether or not a conquest was scheduled to be done. That issue had already been settled. God had instructed he was giving the land to Israel. They simply had to take it. And, and, and the way I look at it is their scouting expedition, as they were getting ready to go, it was like a young child on Christmas Eve that kind of tips toe down the stairs and peeks around the corner and looks at the Christmas tree and there's gifts under that tree. And they know that those gifts are for them. They just have to wait till Christmas morning. The giver had already determined that that gift was theirs. It was a matter of waiting and following the instructions. And that's where Israel is. So the Bible tells us these scouts, they go out and they explore. For 40 days, they travel throughout the land. And sometimes some of our scriptures translated as spies, like they were moving in secret, but they weren't. They were in the open. Nobody feared them. They were just a ragtag band of scouts. And as they went through, they covered almost 200 miles. They went from Negev near Kadesh Barnea, where they were camped, to cities where these people named the Anak lived, to a valley called Eshkol, where the Valley of Grapes, where the grapes were so huge that when they brought this fruit back, two men had to suspend them on a pole. Those are some big grapes. You can't get them at Market Basket, I don't think. Eventually they return and, and 10 of the 12 scouts offer what I call a majority report. They showed everyone the fruit. Huge grapes, pomegranates, figs. They acknowledged that the land was so abundant that it flowed with milk and honey. Have you ever heard that term? That's where it came from. But they were also alarmed. In fact, the scriptures say that they were petrified. The cities were large. The cities that they saw were fortified. The people who lived there, there was a lot of them. Amalekites, Hittites, Canaanites, Amorites, Medfordites. Oh, you're listening. Okay. Those people that they saw were strong. In fact, they said that they saw the descendants of Anak there. These were men of great height and great strength. And because of their report, the implication from this majority scout team was, we should not go into this promised land. There is too much danger. There was also a minority report. There were two scouts that offered different counsel to Moses. Caleb said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. For Caleb and Joshua, the facts that were reported were not the issue. The truth is the land was bountiful, the inhabitants were many, they were strong, the cities were walled, they were fortified, the opposition would be stiff. These facts were not in dispute. 
A rebuttal was given by the majority report, which is the way it often happens in these things. And it said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. And then the 10 scouts continued to give a mutinous, poisonous report. The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land, now listen, that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are, listen, of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. If I were to paraphrase their report, it would be something like, we felt like shrimps. And that we were on the menu as shrimp cocktail. They're just getting ready to be devoured. And this is where I would like us to begin reading this story. See, it's the tipping point. It's the place where temptation to disobedience and unfaithfulness is at its greatest. It's a place that was familiar to Israel. It's a place that we're going to learn later. It was intensely familiar to our Lord Jesus Christ. And it was a place that I think, if we're honest, is familiar to each and every one of us. For we face trials and temptation on a regular day. At least I know that I do. So if you would uh, do me a favor and just bow your heads and just simply repeat after me while I pray a simple prayer. Heavenly Father, you may repeat. Heavenly Father, speak to my heart and change my life. Amen. Let's read about the response that the people of Israel had to this poisonous report. Why don't you turn to Numbers chapter 14, verse 1. And uh, your pew Bibles, I think that's 122. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. See, the people respond to the report with not just grumbling and complaining, but actually, if you look at it, with distortions and lies, they take it even further. Is it really better to die back in Egypt than to um, live? Is it better to remain in the wilderness than to go into a promised land? Did, is it true that the Lord had brought them to that point so that they could just simply fall by the sword was that really Yahweh's motive? Did that reflect anything that they had seen him say and do in their experience? You see, rather than seeing the circumstances that faced them with eyes of faith and the one who had safely brought them this far, the people turned in rebellion and they were overwhelmed by what I call the irrationality of unbelief. Instead of being motivated to obey and to demonstrate faithfulness, they actually sink into rejection. They're going to try and elect a new leader against, by the way, God's own appointed leaders. And they'll wish for the certainty, now mind you, the certainty of death rather than take a chance on the possibility of life in the promised land. Does that make any sense to you? Doesn't it sound kind of crazy? They desire to reverse 
the miraculous exodus that they had experienced and seen, and they cling to their irrational fear the same way a drowning man might irrationally cling to a heavy bowling ball as he sank to the bottom of the ocean. With a mindset like that, the sad part is this story only gets worse. Let's keep reading. Look in verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out, it is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and he will give it to us. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb, they correctly identify the fork of faithful and unfaithful that's in the road set before them. The land's not just good, it is exceedingly good. That is the truth. And it is the one who is giving them the land that will be the one that actually takes them into possession. And so here's the only question that Israel really had to answer. Will they prove themselves faithful? Will they obey the command of God, even in the face of what looks like great evil and great danger? To choose otherwise is to, as Moses said, rebel against the Lord. And so if fear is going to be an emotion that drives their decision-making, then fear God before you fear mere mortals. They can be consumed before his holy power. God is with us. Moses said, there's no protection for anyone anywhere on heaven or on earth that cannot be overcome by Yahweh. Let's go to verse 10. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. That's not exactly the response I think Moses was looking for. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And here we see that sadly, the nation of Israel falls prey to their own fear and they choose not to be faithful. They respond with a determination instead to do violence to the only truly rational, reasonable, faith-filled people that are found amongst them. It's sort of like their, their, their unfaithfulness, you can almost see it, is hardening like newly poured cement on a sunny day here in New England. And so God responds to the harshness of Israel. The glory of God appears before all of the people and he proclaims his judgment for his unfaithfulness to them. He has been patient. He has been long-suffering. 
He has made himself known. He has allowed himself to be seen. But there are consequences to unfaithfulness. And Israel, listen, Israel is in much greater danger right now than any danger they would have faced in the promised land. Well, there's a lot more to this story, almost 30 some odd verses, and we won't have the time to read every sentence. So let me just tell you the rest of this story. Moses prays and he appeals to God on behalf of the people of Israel. And it's not the first time that Moses has interceded on behalf of them. See, their continual unfaithfulness kept Moses as a leader on his knees all the time. And so this morning, I just have a little sidebar about that because I think intercessory prayer is one of those issues that sometimes as Christians we can uh, struggle with. It can be a bit of a profound mystery. How is it that a sovereign and eternal God actually listens to and responds to the prayers of sinful human beings like us? How is it that he in eternity past can design his perfect will for the future and yet seemingly make adjustments over time? in response to the humble prayers that someone like you and I might offer. It's a perplexing how question for some people, and there's huge theological books written. And, but here's what I do know. It's clear when we read the scriptures that the intercession of the faithful on behalf of others, it's real, and it's powerful, and it's effective. And if I'm honest, I can't tell you today every minor intricacy of the mechanism of how that works perfectly, but I do know this. The scripture tells us that there are those that are around us who do not know Jesus Christ, and, and today you might know someone uh, like this. And so the harsh reality is that person stands under God's holy and just judgment. Spiritual death is their current reality. Physical death will soon follow, and eternal separation from God will be the result of any rebellion and any re, um, rejection of who he is. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, because we have received his mercy by faith alone, we've been spared that consequence, and we are urged, encouraged, admonished to enter into and intercede in prayer on the behalf of people that are around us. And if, if, if we're privileged, we will see the fruit of that intercession as those around us who are like condemned prisoners are sprung free from their chains and moved from death into life. It's one of the reasons why here at Redemption Hill we have just a very simple tool that we use. It's just something that, that we use that's helpful. It's called a movement card. And perhaps you've seen them. I think sometimes we have them, and we'll share them, we'll pass them out. And, and this is my movement card. This is actually one that you'll find in my little Bible, and I carry it, and I think about it. And all, it's, all it is is this. We think about the people that we live with, work with, um, play with, and we consider where they are spiritually. And after reflecting on, on their situation and their state, we begin to intercede on their behalf. We, we feel the sense that God is calling us into the participation of calling them to himself. In fact, some of you are probably here because at some point, somebody was quietly and prayerfully 
holding you before the throne of grace. And in the middle of whatever irrationality of unbelief you had, God's grace broke through in part partnered with the intercessory prayers of some ordinary people. And so natural consequences that might occur for somebody who is rebelling and pushing and rejecting God, those are averted. And that's what Moses is doing here on behalf of his people. And his prayer it was solidly based on two absolutely critical principles. First, he said, God, your glory should not be diminished. If you wipe out Israel, the Egyptians are going to hear of that. And they're going to say, that God is not capable. He's not able and he's not willing to do what he said he could do. And secondly, God, the nations will really never understand who you are. Your real character, the myths and the lies about who you are, will continue to, per to perpetuate. You're a God of grace. And this action will diminish that. And so he pleaded with God to pardon Israel according to the greatness of Yahweh's steadfast love. See, God's glory and God's character... Those are always the heart of our prayers with him. And so God, like you would expect, responds to Moses. He grants Moses his request because he is a God of grace, but he's also a just God. There's going to be consequences in this story for foolish choices and unfaithful decisions. And the men that saw his glory, beginning with the plagues in Egypt and the miracles in the desert and then still stubbornly refused and were disobedient as they got ready to enter the promised land, they're not going to enter the promised land. Rather, they and their children are going to just wander the wilderness for 40 years, one year for every day that they were scouting in the promised land of Canaan. Then and only then, after that wandering's been done, the little ones who they said would fall prey to the Canaanites will actually enter into the promised land. And God exacts three judgments. One, the majority report, the ones that brought the poison, they immediately die of a plague. There's immediate consequences sometimes to our foolish choices. And then second, ironically, Israel, who had refused to go into the promised land, saw that judgment, and they immediately rush into the promised land, and they're wiped out by the Amalekites. Why? That was no longer God's instruction. God had given them a new instruction. And so in their haste, again, they grabbed the authority of God's decision-making and instructions and made themselves the God of those instructions. So they met defeat. And then just as God said, Israel continued to wander for 40 years until all of the disobedient scouts and their families had actually passed away. I don't know about you, but all in all, that's a pretty depressing story. Why was there a difference in the reports of these two groups of people? How could they come up with such different assessments while they were looking at the exact same set of facts? And the answer is not hard to find. Think of the majority report again. They had completely left God out of the equation. Listen to how they described the land as they toured it in uh, 
verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 27. They described it as the land to which you, Moses, sent us. There's no mention of God whatsoever in that. As opposed to 13.2, the land the Lord is giving us. See, they just removed. They forgot him. And instead, they feared their enemies. Now, Joshua and Caleb, they looked at the same set of facts, the same situations, and they came at it with a perspective of faith, not a perspective of unbelief. Even Joshua's name, the Lord saves, testifies to their point of view. This specific faith that they had in God's presence, the necessity that they felt in obedience to his commands and the privilege that they experienced in receiving his favor is what drove their interpretation of those facts. And it solidified, it sort of hardened their commitment to obedience. And that, my friends, is the very foundation of faithfulness. Now, the truth is most of us struggle on a daily basis with choices of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. Um, sometimes we do a good job of cleaning it up so it looks like in public we're doing okay. But I think that's why it's important that we stop here for a moment and we recognize this next truth. That Jesus is the true and greater Israel who remains faithful to the will of the Father even in the face of great evil, great danger, and great suffering. And if we think about his example, the example of one who walked through a world that was full of sin, and yet he remained perfect in his righteousness, and not just for an hour or a day or a month or a year, but for an entire lifetime. I'm thinking that if we look at that, we can gain some insights on what it might be to be a more faithful people. So I want you to quickly turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, and bring your finger down to verse 36. If you have a pew Bible, it's uh, page 832. As you're flipping, we're heading into Easter. Easter's going to be here in three weeks. And this scripture, I think, is a great springboard into our Easter season. For in this passage, Jesus is found in Gethsemane. It's a garden area where there are lots of olive groves. And, and, and most likely, this location is where Jesus and his disciples actually camped. Because, again, this was a festival time. The Passover was being served. Uh, and and the, the city of Jerusalem was crowded. And, and you, frankly, there was no room in the inn. You couldn't find easy places. So people would just sort of camp on the outskirts of the city. And this is where you would have found them. And this is, like our story in Numbers, a pivotal moment. In fact, I would suggest it might be the most pivotal moment in all of human history. Because Jesus is just about to be betrayed by Judas with a kiss. And then he is well on his way after that to crucifixion on a cross. And so in this story that we're going to look at from, this, from the scriptures, Jesus prays three agonizing prayers as he gets ready to face his greatest temptation. And yet it's the greatest opportunity that he has to demonstrate faithfulness in obedience to the Father. Let's pick up on verse 36. Then Jesus went with him to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. 
And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. When I look at this, I'm kind of struck by how many parallels or similarities that I can see in here between the story we just read and the story in Numbers that we read before. See, both had been given clear instructions from God the Father. Israel was to take the land, and Jesus was to bear the cross. Israel had been brought to the edge of the promised land. Jesus was approaching the culmination of his life's mission to bear the sins of the world on a tree in Calvary. Israel was confronted by real enemies. They, there were walled cities. They were strong people. Jesus was going to be confronted with real pain and real death. And both were at their tipping points, crossroads, so to speak, of temptation. Israel faced the temptation to reverse course and to flee. Jesus faced the very real temptation of accomplishing redemption in some way other than the cross. But that's where the similarities between these two stories stop, between unfaithful Israel and faithful Jesus. For Jesus is the true and greater Israel, and it's he who will demonstrate what real faithfulness looks like. Look at what he says. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Where's the attention of Jesus? Looking at the scripture. It's on his heavenly father. Is he aware of what lies ahead of him? I would say absolutely. He knows what's coming. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. See, this isn't a demand from Jesus. This isn't a rejection of the mission. This is an acknowledgement that what he is going to face is severe. He's going to face physical pain. We know from the scriptures that he was flogged, that he was speared, that he was crucified. We know that he would undergo death. He would face emotional pain. He would experience abandonment by friends and see the tears of his mother at the cross. He would undergo social pain. He would uh, be stripped. He'd be mocked. He'd be jeered as the king of the Jews. And he would experience spiritual pain. And here I want us to slow down for just a moment. In the Old Testament, the cup was a picture or a metaphor of divine punishment for sin. In his identification with sinful man, me and you, Jesus was aware that soon he would become the object of the full wrath of God against sin, a holy wrath. A wrath against Israel's sin. A wrath against your sin. 
and a wrath against my sin. And here in the Garden of Gethsemane, the full horror of that wrath is clear and it's obvious the price that's going to be paid. In fact, the awfulness of that wrath is so bitter that Jesus cries out, if it were possible. While praying in the garden, his anguish in his spirit was so great that Luke, in his gospel, adds that Jesus' sweat became like great drops of blood falling down upon the ground. From cover to cover in the Bible, we're told that the weight of sin is so incompatible with God that the only possibility of redeeming sinners like you and I is the sacrifice of a perfect lamb. We studied that a couple of weeks ago. And that lamb was to be Jesus. And he knew the horror that awaited him. See, the horror wasn't some imaginary giants from the land of Canaan, some Nephilim and sons of Anak. It was something that was much worse than that. For Jesus knew that as he hung, crucified, dying for the sins of the world, your sins, my sins, as he neared that last moment of his life, that there would be a moment in time where he would experience separation from God his Father. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew writes that Jesus prays a second time. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Luke puts it this way, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. In other words, this was Jesus persistently, continuously pressing and affirming his commitment to obedience. It was to be that God the Father's will would be done. He resolved in his spirit to be faithful. And through that, God the Father would be glorified. And, and God the Father's mercy would flow out to others that the penalty and the cross that was to be paid for you and for me would be done. And so strong was this commitment that Matthew says that Jesus prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. He was fully aware of what lied ahead of him. Shortly he'd be betrayed and arrested, but despite the circumstances that he was entering into, he would remain the only truly faithful person ever to walk this earth. And so this morning, I just want to bring us a couple of encouragements before we part. Encouragement number one. Choose faithfulness to God's instructions and promises while depending upon him, even in the times of great difficulty. As Israel approached the promised land, remember, they forgot who the promise maker was. Let's not do that. They allowed their emotions, especially fear, to overwhelm them. They forgot the natural consequences of their disobedience, rebuke before a holy and powerful God. So let me ask you, let me ask us, 
some questions. If you were in my house, I'd say, turn off the TV. I want you to listen. I want you to pay attention. Actually, my wife would tell me that, tell me to turn it off. Where is God calling you today in greater faithfulness to an instruction or to a promise? What difficult circumstance are you facing? Is there a fork in the road where you stand? Is there a decision where the outcome hangs in the balance? And what is your tipping point? What is your temptation between unfaithful and faithful? Are you like Israel in our story today? When you consider the facts of your circumstances, listen, do you see giants or do you see God? Some of us are right on the edge of some major choices that we need to make. And some of us are just on the edge of entering into the promised land. Let's commit ourselves to be faithful even in the face of some pretty big difficulties. Because remember, we want to remember what the Apostle Paul said in the second letter of the Corinthians. We walk by faith, not by sight. Encouragement number two. Receive the encouragement to remain faithful to God. How? Through the example of Jesus Christ and the filling of his spirit. See, the writer of Hebrews put it this way in Hebrews 5.7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Here's what I think we can learn. Let's take this away. Jesus acknowledged what he faced. While being fully divine, he was fully human as well. He acknowledged the reality of his circumstances. He did not deny the truthfulness of the facts that faced him. He did not treat real pain as just an illusion. He experienced the full range of emotions, emotions that we often, as his created beings, experience. And he even gave voice to those emotions, the scriptures say, with loud cries and with tears. The Garden of Gethsemane passage, if nothing else, should give us testimony to the reality of Jesus was fully human as well as fully divine. And we should be comforted by that. Secondly, Jesus submitted to the will of the Father. He prayed with reverence. Why? Because he knew who he was speaking to. God the Father had all authority. For the sake of the mission at hand, Christ willingly laid down his life rather than embracing temptation to disobedience like unfaithful Israel, Jesus rejected temptation and actively laid down his life willingly. Third, Jesus persisted in prayer. In Luke's account, he notes that Jesus had gone there to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane as was his custom. This prayer of Jesus at the pinnacle of confrontation wasn't unusual. This was his Lifestyle, connecting in prayer with his heavenly father, was not something Jesus did just when things looked difficult. No, Jesus, the son of God, demonstrated the rhythm of prayer on a regular daily basis. It was his lifeblood. And he was able to submit to the will of the father. Why? Because he knew the father. He knew the father's intentions and he knew the father's 
heart. And because he knew both of those things, it gave great confidence to do hard things. Jesus trusted the one who gave the instructions and who made the promises. While obedience flowed from duty, it also flowed from that intimate relationship. God's character was well known. It had been bathed in prayer. It had been experienced in real life. And Jesus knew that it was God the Father who was able to save him from death. That's faith. Trusting someone who has not yet completed what he's promised, but being confident that he will. We're going to need to do one other thing that Jesus never had to do. And that is we're going to have to confess our unfaithfulness if we're going to learn from this. Despite the example that Jesus set before us, we can be more like unfaithful Israel. We fail to be faithful. I fail to be faithful. It can be so discouraging. Are you ever discouraged when you trip and stumble and fail? I am. Natural consequences sometimes come into my life because of the poor choices that I've made. Sometimes a sense of guilt and unworthiness can set in. And believe me, the enemies of God take that and use it as a weapon to tear down and to destroy. And so what possible alternative do we have? Because we're like unfaithful Israel. Well, we can admit our sin. We can admit the irrationality of our unbelief, our unfaithfulness. John said it like this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We get a second chance at faithfulness. Don't we all really need that? How about a third chance and a fourth chance and a fifth chance? How about seven times 70 chances? So when it's time, let us confess. Let's confess quickly when we fail the test of faithfulness. Let's learn from our failures. Let's learn to do better. And, and then God, here's the great part. God gets glorified as we're transformed into an increasingly more faithful people. And then others get to see his character. The very reason that God called Israel to faithfulness. The Apostle Peter put it this way, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Why did Jesus push through the night of agony in the garden of Gethsemane? So that he could go die on a cross? Peter says it was for us. For us, he was willing to push through that terrible night. Here's my final word. The goal of faithfulness is not that we'll do work for God. It's that he will be free to do his work through us. See, he calls us into his service and he'll put great responsibilities upon us. He will expect 
No complaining and grumbling. And many times he will not offer an explanation for his instructions. But he does want to use us just as he used his son, Jesus Christ. I think I became the 11th follower of Tanner Turley's tweet list. He said he had 10 last week. I think I'm number 11 because I picked up this tweet from him. When we fulfill all that God wills for us, we will experience all that God has for us. Imagine a group of people like us, known as Redemption Hill Church, we're gathered together. We're committed to obedience and faithfulness. And sometimes we fail and then we're quick to confess. Imagine the, 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 the power of that commitment that's unleashed into a broken and hurting world like Greater Medford. And we bring good news. I kind of see it like a fleet of taxi cabs fueled by the Holy Spirit following a map that's been laid out by Jesus with a central dispatcher called God the Father. Can you imagine that? The effect it would have of faithful people here in Greater Medford. For Israel, they missed an opportunity. They were called to be faithful. For Jesus, he achieved faithfulness. For he's the true and greater Israel. And because of that, may his name be glorified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, it's easy to walk away this morning with a sense of, of, of what we haven't done and what we don't do. And I know for myself, it's so much easier to identify with Israel, the fears that are in my life, the circumstances that overwhelm me, I just pray by the blessing of your Holy Spirit that you would prevent us from sinking into that. Rather, Father, set our eyes firmly on who you are, your character, your heart for us. Fill us with your spirit that we might be obedient people and faithful people. And Father, thank you so much for your son Jesus Christ, the epitome of faithfulness. Help us to be increasingly transformed, to be more like him. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.